Chapter 15 of Afloat on the Ohio, an historical pilgrimage of a thousand miles in a skiff from Redstone to Cairo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Smith. Afloat on the Ohio by Reuben Gold Thwarts. Chapter 15 The Story of North Bend, The Shakes, Driftwood, Rabbit Hash, A Side Trip to Big Bone Lick, near Petersburg, Kentucky, Friday, May 25th. This morning, an hour before noon, as we looked upon the river from the top of the Cincinnati Wharf, a wild scene presented itself. The shore up and down, as far as could be seen, was densely lined with packets and freighters. Beyond them, the great stream here, half a mile wide, was rushing past like a mill race, and black with all manner of drift, some of it formed into great rafts, from each of which sprawled a network of huge branches. Had we been strangers to this offscoring of a thousand miles of beach swirling past us at a six-mile gait, we might well have doubted the prudence of launching little pilgrim upon such a sea, but for two days past we had been had missed something of the sort, and knew that to canoe us it was less dangerous than it appeared. A strong headwind, meeting this surging tide, is lashing it into a white-capped fury, but lying to with paddle and oars, and dodging ferries and towing tugs as best we may, Pilgrim bears us swiftly past the long line of steamers at the wharf, past Newport and Covington, and the insignificant licking, and out under great railway bridges, which cobwebbed the sky. Soon Cincinnati, shrouded in smoke, has disappeared around the bend, and we are in the fast-thinning suburbs, homes of beer gardens and excursion barges, havens for freight flats, and villas of low and high degree. When we are out here in the swim, the drift stream has a more peaceful aspect than when looked at from the shore. Instead of rushing past as if dooming to destruction, everything else afloat, the debris falls behind. When we row, for our progress is then the greater. Dropping our oars, our gruesome companions on the river pass us slowly, for they catch less wind than we, and then so silent the steady march of all we seem to be drifting upstream until on glancing at the shore the hills appear to be swiftly going down and the willow fringes up until the sight makes us dizzy and we are content to be at quits with these optical delusions we no longer have the beach of gravel or sand or strip of clay knee deep in mud the water now twelve feet higher than before the rise has covered all. It is indeed swaying the branches of sycamores and willows, and meeting the edges of the cornfields of venturesome farmers who have cultivated far down, taking the risk of a June fresh. Often could we, if we wished, row quite within the bulwark of willows, where a week ago we would have ventured to camp. The Kentucky side, today, from Covington out, has been thoroughly rustic, seldom broken by settlement. 
while Ohio has given us a succession of suburban towns all the way out to North Bend, 482 miles, which is a small manufacturing place lying on a narrow bottom at the base of a convulsion of gentle wooded hills. One sees that Cincinnati has a better and broader base. North Bend was handicapped by nature in its early race. When Ohio came into the Union, 1803, it was specified that the boundary between her and Indiana should be a line running due north from the mouth of the Big Miami, but the latter, an erratic stream, frequently the victim of floods, comes wriggling down to the Ohio through a broad bottom grown thick to willows, and in times of high water its mouth is a changeable locality. The boundary monument is planted on the meridian of what was the mouth. 90 odd years ago, but today the Miami breaks through an opening in the quivering line of Willow Forest, a hundred yards eastward, 487 miles. Garrison Creek is a modest Kentucky affluent just above the Miami's mouth. At the point, a group of rustics sat on a log at the bank top, watching us approach. Landing in search of milk and water, I was taken by one of them in a lumbersome skiff a short distance up the creek and presented to his family. They are genuine crackers of the coarsest type, tall, lean, sallow, fishy-eyed, with towel-collared hair, an ungainly gait, barefooted, and in nondescript clothing, all patches and tatters. The tousle-headed woman, surrounded by her copies in miniature, keeps the milk neatly in an outer dairy, perhaps, because of market requirements. But in the crazy old log house, pigs and chickens are free combers, and the cistern from which they drink is foul. Here in this damp, low pocket of a bottom, annually flooded to the door, seal, in the midst of vegetation of the rankest order, and quite unheedful of the simplest of sanitary laws, these yellow-skinned crackers are cradled, wetted, and bearded and there are thousands like unto them, for we are now in the heart of the shake country, and shall hear enough of the plague through the remainder of our pilgrimage. As for ourselves, we fear not, for it is not until autumn that danger is imminent, and we are taking due precaution under the doctor's guidance. Two miles beyond is the Indiana town of Lawrenceburg, with the unkempt aspect so common to the small river places and two miles still farther on a Kentucky bottom, Petersburg, whose chiefest building, as viewed from the stream, is a huge distillery. On a high sandy terrace, a mile or so below, we pitch our nightly camp. All about are willows rustling musically in the evening breeze and soaring far aloft. The now familiar sycamores, nearly opposite in Indiana, the little city of Aurora, is sparkling with points of light, strains of dance music reaches over the way, and occasional shouts and gay laughter, while now and then, in the thickening dusk of the long day, we hear skiffs go chuckling by from Petersburg Way, and the gleeful voices of men and women doubtless being ferried to the ball. Near Warsaw, Kentucky, Saturday, May 26, our first mosquito appeared last night, but he was easily slaughtered. It has been a comfort to be free thus far from these pests of camp life, 
we had prepared for them by laying in a bolt of black tarleton and at wheeling greatly superior this to ordinary white mosquito bar but thus far it has remained in the shopman's wrapper the fog this morning was of the heaviest at four o'clock we were awakened by the sharp clanging of the pilot's signal bell and there poking her nose in among our willows a dozen feet from the tent was the big sandy one of the st louis and cincinnati packet line she had evidently lost her bearings in the mist but with a deal of ringing and a nosy churning of the water by the reverse paddle wheel pulled out and disappeared into the gloom the river still rising is sweeping down an ever-increasing body of rubbish islands and beaches away back to the alleghanies on the main stream and on thousands of miles of affluence are yielding up those vast rafts of driftwood and fallen timber which have continually impressed us on our way with a sense of the enormous wastage everywhere in progress necessary of course in view of the prohibitive cost of transportation nonetheless one thinks pitifully of the tens of thousands who in congested districts each winter suffer unto death for want of fuel and here is this wealth of forest debris the useless plaything of the river but not only wreckage of this character is borne upon the flood the thievish river has picked up valuable saw logs that have run astray lumber of many sorts boxes barrels and now and then the body of a cow or horse that has tumbled to its death from some treacherous clay cliff or rocky terrace the beaches have been swept clean by the rushing flood of whatever lay upon them be it good or bad for the great scavenger exercises no discretion the bulk of the matter now follows the current in an almost solid raft as it carooms from shore to shore having swift water everywhere at this stage for the most part we avoid entangling pilgrim in the procession but row upon the outskirts interested in the curious medley and observant of the many birds which perch upon the branches of the floating trees and sing blithery on their way the current bears hard upon the aurora beach and townsfolk by scores are out in skiffs or are standing by the water's edge engaged with boat hooks and spearing choice morsels from the debris rushing by their door heaping it upon the shore to dry or gathering it in little rafts which they moor to the bank it is a busy scene the wreckers men women and children alike are so engaged in their grab bag game that they have no eyes for us unobserved we watch them at close range and speculate upon their respective chances rabbit hash kentucky 502 miles is a crude hamlet of a hundred souls lying nestled in a green amphitheater a horsepower ferry runs over to the larger village of rising sun its indiana neighbor there is a small general store in rabbit hash with post office and paint shop attachment and nearby tobacco warehouse and a blacksmith shop with a few cottages scattered at intervals over the bottom the postmaster who is also the storekeeper and painter greeted me with joy as i deposited with him mail matter bearing eighteen cents worth of stamps for his is one of those offices where the salary is the value of the stamps cancelled it is not every day that so liberal a patron comes along jim and i bill but gov em it business 
Looking up, there'll be something'll rest us a wantin' in this year office after next election, I reckon. It was the blacksmith, who is also the ferryman, who thus bantered the delighted postmaster, a broad-faced, big-chested, brown-armed man, with his neck muscles standing out like cords, and his mild blue eyes dancing with fun, his rustic disciple of Tubal Cain, he sat just without the door, leather apron upon, and his red shirt sleeves rolled up, playing checkers on an upturned soapbox with a jolly fat farmer from the hill country, whose broad straw hat was cocked on the back of his bald head. The merry laughter of the two was infectious. The half-dozen spectators, small farmers whose teams and saddle horses were hitched to the post office railing, were themselves hilarious over the game. And a saffron-skinned, hollow-cheeked woman in a blue sunbonnet and with a market basket over her arm stopped for a moment at the threshold to look on, and then passed within the store, her eyes having caught the merriment, although her facial muscles had apparently lost their power of smiling. Joining the little company, I found that the farmer was a blundering player, but made up in fun what he lacked in science. I tried to ascertain the origin of the name Rabbit Hash as applied to the hamlet. Everyone had a different opinion, evidently invented on the spur of the moment, but all lowed that none but the tobacco agent could tell, and he was off in the country for the day. As for themselves, they had, they confessed, never thought of it before. It always had been rabbit hash, and like enough would be to the end of time. We are on the lookout for Big Bone Creek, wishing to make a side trip to the famous Big Bone Lick. But among the many openings through the willows of the Kentucky shore, we may well miss it. Hence, make constant inquiry as we proceed. There was a houseboat in the mouth of one goodly of affluent, as we hove in sight. A fat woman, whose gunny sack apron was her chief attire, hurried up the gang plank and disappeared within. Hello, the boat, one of us hailed. The woman's fuzzy head appeared at the window. What creek is this? Gunpowder, I reckon, in a deep, man-like voice. How far below is Big Bone? Just a piece. How many miles? Two, I reckon. Big Bone Creek, 512 miles. Some 50 or 60 feet wide at the mouth opens through a willow patch between pretty slopping hills, a houseboat lay just within. A favorite situation for them, these creek mouse. For here they are undisturbed by steamer wakes, and the fishing is usually good. The proprietor, a rather distinguished-looking lotto, despite his old clothes and plantation straw hat, was sitting in a chair at his cabin door, angling. His white wife was leaning over him lovingly. As we shot into the scene, but at once withdrew inside, this man with his side whiskers and fine hair, may have been a head waiter or a dance fiddler in better days. But his soft, plaintive voice and hacking cough bespoke the invalid. He told us what he knew about the creek, which was little enough, as he had but recently come to these parts. At an ordinary stage in the Ohio, the Big Boone cannot be ascended in a skiff for more than half a mile. 
Now upon the back set, we are able to proceed for two miles, leaving but another two miles of walking to the lick itself. The creek curves gracefully around the bases of the sugarloaf hills of the interior. Under the swaying arc of willows and of ragged, sprawling sycamores, their bark all patched up with green and gray and buff and white, we have charming vistas. The quiet water, thick grown with aquatic plants, the winding banks bearing green dragons and many another flower-loving damp shade. The frequent rocky palisades oozing with springs and great blue herons stretching their long necks in wonder and then setting off with a stately flight which reminds one of the cranes on Japanese ware. Through the dense fringe of vegetation we have occasional glimpses of the hillside farms. Their slopping fields sprinkled with stones, their often barren pastures, numerous abandoned tracks overgrown with weeds and bluegrass lush in the meadows. Along the edges of the creek and in little pocket bottoms, the varied vegetation has a subtropical luxuriance. And in this now close, warm air, there is a rank smell suggestive of malaria. These bottoms are annually overflowed so that the crude little farmsteads are on the rising ground. Whitewashed cabins, many of them of logs, serve as houses. For stock, there are the various shanties affording practically no shelter. Best of all, the rude tobacco drying sheds, in many of which some of last year's crop can still be seen, hanging on the strips. We are out of the world here and barefooted men and boys who, with listless air, are fishing for the banks, gaze at us in dull wonder as we thread our torturous way. Finally, we learned that we could, with profit, go no higher. Before us were two miles of what was described as the roughest sort of hill road, and the afternoon sun was powerful. So we accepted the invitation of a rustic fisherman, to rest with his woman folks in a little cabin up the hill a bit, seeing her safely housed with a good-natured cracker farm wife, the doctor, the boy, and I trudged off towards Big Boone Lick. The waxy clay of the roadbed had recently been wetted by a shower. The walking, consequently, was none of the best, but we were repaid with charming views of hill and vale a softly rolling scene dotted with gray and brown fields, chumps of woodland, rail-fenced pastures, and cabins of the crudest sort for in the autumn tide. The curse of malaria haunts the basin of the big boom, and none but he of fortune spurned would care here in his beauty spot to plant his vine and fig tree. Now and then our path leads us across the winding creek, which in these upper reaches tumbles noisily over ledges of jagged rock above which luxuriant sycamores and elms and maples arch gracefully. At each picturesque fording place with its inevitable watering pool are stepping stones for foot pilgrims. Often a flock of geese are sailing in the pool with crane necks and flapping wings hissing defiance to disturbers of their sylvan peace. The travelers we meet are on horseback. Most of them, the yellow-skinned, hollow-cheeked folk, 
with lackluster eyes whom we note in the cabin doors are waddling about their daily routine. On nearing the lick, two young horsewomen out of the common looked interestingly at us, and I stopped to inquire the way. Although the village spire is peering above the treetops yonder, pretty buxom sweet-faced lassies these with soft pleasant voices, each with her market basket over her arm, going homeward from shopping. It would be interesting to know their story. What is it that brings these daughters of a brighter world here into this valley of the living death? Two hundred yards farther where the road forks and the one at the right hand descends to the small hamlet of Big Bone Lick. There is an interesting picture. Beneath the way post, a girl in a blue calico gown, her face deep hidden in a red sunbonnet, sits upon a chestnut mount with a laden market basket before her, while by her side astride a coal-black pony, which fretfully paused to be on his way is a roughly dressed youth, his face shaded by a broad slouched hat of the cowboy order. They have evidently met there by appointment and are so earnestly conversing. She, with her hand resting lovingly, perhaps, depreciately upon his bridle arm and his free hand nervously stroking her horse's mane, while his eyes are far afield, that they do not observe us as we pass, and we are free to weave from the incident any sort of cracker romance which fancy may dictate. The source of Big Bone Creek is a marshy basin some fifty acres in extent, rimmed with gently sloping hills and freely pitted with copious springs of a water strongly sulfurous in taste with a suggestion of salt. The odor is so powerful as to be all-pervading a quarter of a mile away, and to be readily detected at twice that distance. The collection of springs constitutes Big Bone Lick, probably the most famous of the many similar licks in Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois. The salt licks of the Ohio Basin were from the earliest times resorted to be in great numbers by wild beasts and were favorite camping grounds for Indians and for white hunters and explorers. This one was first visited by the French as early as 1729 and became famous because of the great quantities of remains of animals which lay all over the marsh, particularly noticeable being the gigantic bones of the extinct mammoth, hence the name adopted by the earliest American hunters, Big Bone. These monsters had evidently been murdered in the swamp while seeking to lick the salty mud and died in their tracks. Pioneer chronicles abound in references to the lick, and we read frequently of hunting parties using the ribs of the mammoth for tent poles, and sections of the vertebrae as camp stools and tables. But in our own day, there are no surface evidence of this once rich treasure of giant fossils, although occasionally a find is made by enterprising excavators several bones having thus been unearthed only a week ago they are now on exhibition in the neighboring village preparatory to being shipped to an eastern museum as we hurried back over the rolling highway thunderclouds grandly rose out of the west and great drops of rain gave us moist warning of the coming storm was watching us from the cabin door as we made the last turning in the road and accompanied by the farm wife and her two daughters. 
came tripping down to the landing. She had been entertained in the one downstairs room as royalty as these honest cracker women folk knew how. Seated in the family rocking chair, as she had heard in those two hours, the social gossip of a wide neighborhood, learned, too, that the cold, wet weather of the last fortnight had killed turkey chicks and goslings by the score. Heard of the damage being done to corn and tobacco by the prevalent high water, was told how Bess and Brindle fared, off in the rocky pasture which yields little else than mullets, and how far back Towser had to go to claim relationship to a collie. And weren't we really show people going down the river this way in a skiff? Or if we weren't show people, had we an agency for something? Or were we only in trade? It seems a difficult task to make these people on the bottoms believe that we are skipping it for pleasure. It is a sort of pleasure so far removed from their notions of the fitness of things, and so at last we have given up trying, and let them think of our pilgrimage what they will. The entire family now assembled on the muddy bank and bade us a really affectionate farewell, as if we had been in this isolated corner of the world, most welcome guests who were going all too soon, in a few strokes of the oars, we were rounding the bend and waving our hands at the little knot of watchers went forth from their wives, doubtless forever. The storm soon burst upon us in a full fury. Clad in rubber, we rested under giant trees or beneath projecting rock ledges taking advantage of occasional lulls to push on for a few rods to some new shelter. The numerous little hillside runs, which in our journey up were but dry gullies, choked with leaves and boulders, were now brimming with muddy torrents, rushing all foam, flecked, and with deafening roar into the central stream. At last the cloud curtain rolled away, the sun gushed out with fiery rays, the arch of foliage sparkled with splendor in meadow and on hillside. The face of nature was clearly beautiful. At the creek mouth, the distinguished mulatto still was fishing from his chair, and standing by his side was his wife throwing a spoon. They nodded to us pleasantly as old friends returned. Gliding by their boat, Pilgrim was soon once more in the full current of the swift-flowing Ohio. We are high up tonight on a little grass terrace in Kentucky, two miles above Warsaw. The usual country road lies back of us, a rod or two, and then a slender field surmounted by a woodland hill. Fortune favors us almost nightly, with beautiful abiding places. In no place could we sleep more comfortably than in our cotton home. End of chapter 15 Recording by John Smith